Proverbs chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. A present is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel begins or starts. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word this morning. Where would we turn if we didn't have your word, Lord? We're thankful that it doesn't change. We're thankful that it says all the things we need it to say and, and, and pierces our very inner being, Lord, like it needs to. And we're grateful. So we pray, Father, that you would use these verses, these 14 verses, packed full of all the, your great intentions for us. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher this morning. We, let, we ask, Lord, that your word would speak for itself. Thank you that it's powerful all by itself. No man can add to its power. We pray that your spirit would comfort us and lead us and guide us and redirect us and convict us, all the things that he's so faithful to do. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I love these Proverbs because right when you think that you're doing well in a certain area, uh, you read another proverb that says, nope, you're not doing as well as you thought, or uh, yeah, you may be doing well today in that area, but you're not doing well in this area. Uh, and there's so much wisdom to be found. And what this chapter is really going to deal with, and we're going to get into half of it today, is dealing with relationships and dealing with how we interact with people. I don't know how many of you think that you excel in having peaceful relationships, but I know for all of us there's room to grow related to that. And it seems like this world's getting worse and worse with its capacity and people's capacity to get along with each other. From our government, to our schools, to churches, to, I mean, families. And the, the enemy's trying so hard to break down the family, to attack the very fabric of the family and, and, and all that that means. And, and so we have to be very careful with the relationships that we have. And we need 
to recognize that just like we as parents, those of us that are parents, how we care about the, our children treat one another, God cares greatly about how we treat one another, not just in the body of Christ, but also outside the body of Christ, how we treat strangers, how we treat Nate. It's like you can't find anywhere in Scripture where you get to mistreat somebody. Well, it's my neighbor. Well, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Okay, well, it's my spouse. No, you're supposed to love your spouse. Oh, it's my enemy. No, Jesus said to love your enemy. He's like, well, where can I find someone that I can mistreat? It's like, no, it doesn't happen. That's not who he is. That's not his standard. That's not his heart. He cares about people, and it matters to him how we treat people on any given day, at any given moment. So this chapter relates very closely to strife or having peace and all those things within our relationships because it's important to him, and he wants us to live in peace. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he said, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It's a great way to say, just be peaceful people. Live in peace. Be peacemakers. God's call said, blessed are the peacemakers. So he added to that in Romans, the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, where he said this, Repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Revengeance vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You know, that could be in our home. It could be our spouse for the day or whatever. If, if your enemy is hungry, feed him or feed her or whatever. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will keep coals of fire on his head. All right, I get to keep coals of fire on my spouse's head. No, that's not our desire to hurt our spouse, obviously. But we're supposed to care for the needy. We are. We're supposed to be attentive to them. And we're supposed to not be in strife and always fighting and always in conflict with people. Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees because they were misguiding the people. They were being roadblocks to them having a personal relationship with him. Jesus threatened their power. He threatened their money because they got a lot of money by ripping the people off around the temple area. So they didn't like him. They were a threat to what they were all about. Paul finished that set of verses in Romans chapter 12 with this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it seems like at times we justify our bad behavior related to living in strife with people because we point to their bad behavior. And we think we have an excuse. Well, because they're doing this or they said this, then I'm going to do this in, instead. And, and we don't see that in Scripture. There's no justification for that in Scripture. We're not supposed to be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We're supposed to turn the other cheek. There's a big sigh in the room. I don't know who that was from. But we are supposed to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to turn, go the extra mile. We're supposed to be servants. We're supposed to not be about giving people what they deserve because 
What if they did that for us? What if we got only what we deserved all the time? It would be brutal. We, we, would, we would get a lot of bad things coming our way because of, of how we are. We're sinful. So God gives us a lot of wisdom in this chapter related to relationships and not being in strife with people and living in peace. That's what he wants. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. And one of the things we need to see from this verse is the word feasting there presupposes prosperity or speaks to the fact that you have a lot or you have something to feast upon. If you're, if you're not prosperous and you're, you know, don't have food, then you can't feast, right? So this is trying, drawing a, a, a contrast between those that live without strife that are poor that only have a dry morsel. I don't know what that would be. What would be a dry morsel? A crust of bread? Maybe? Some leftover pizza? Am I the only one that eats leftover pizza? I hope not. Leftover pizza would be pretty good. Uh, see, we get on food and I get sidetracked. But the dry morsel is so inferior to meat or, or to, you know, a nice, you know, meal there and you're just if you have just crumbs or dry crusts or whatever but you have peace in the home because you're not engaged in a lot of strife with people in the home there's 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 not a lot of strife going on you're way better off than having this massive feast but having a whole bunch of your house full of strife and that's so he knows that he knows that that's not what he wants for us he knows what's best for us is to live peaceable and 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 so that's a good question to ask. Do you, do, how do you deal with strife? How do you deal with your home? How do you deal with how things are with, related to relationships? And what, what can you do to help with the temperament of others around you and having a peaceful home? And it may not be your own personal home. It may be another home that you're in a lot. You know, you have relationships with. You have ex- extended family or whatever. And how, how do we do that? Well, we do it by being a good example ourselves. Because again, we can't ultimately control people's actions. And God doesn't expect us to, to try to do that. And when we get into that, fall into that trap of trying to control other people's actions and, and, and um, responses to things, then it causes harm to us. Not only to them, but in a sense, but also to us. So we're supposed to be an example. And it requires us being spiritual. What does that mean? It means being under the control of the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't be under the control of your sinful nature and be under the control of the, of the Holy Spirit at the same time. I don't know if you noticed that. The scripture says that our flesh, our sinful nature, and the spirit war against each other. So I have to be sowing into my life during all the other times, you know, God's truth and, and feeding my spirit and being spiritually fed and 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 communing with him and what happens is as I do that I stop being so self-consumed and I start having the supernatural capacity to be patient it's almost almost like the fruit of the spirit starts occurring in my life where I start having the supernatural capacity to have to have love and to have patience and have joy and all these things that God produces so if we don't engage God who gives us all those things and he calls them fruit for a reason Fruit that comes out of a tree is a result of the tree being what it is and being tapped into the root system and, and, and being healthy. 
and it just produces fruit. So if we want to live a life that's peaceful and we want to lead by example, then we have to have his life being produced through our lives. We have to have that fruit being produced. But it's not going to happen if we don't spend time with him, if we don't have communion with him, if we don't have time to have him pour into us and infuse his supernatural godliness through our lives. It's beautiful. Sometimes I don't have the capacity, and same with you. We all are in the same situation where we don't have the capacity to say and do the right thing. But in that moment in time, I have a choice to pray and ask the Lord to give me the strength and the patience to do the right thing, and he'll do it every time if we ask him. It's so important that we do that. Look at verse 2. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. See, in, in this time period here, with Solomon's culture, a servant in the home could actually be such an amazing servant that the people in the house to say, the, the, the people in charge of the house, the parents, could say, I want you to be a part of my inheritance. I want to share some of my inheritance with you. And that's what it's talking about. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame. So if you have a son, especially in that culture that causes shame and is not faithful and it causes reproach to the family and all those things, um, it's very possible that one of the servants in the home could actually have a greater inheritance than him. And that shouldn't be the case. Again, this is talking about relationships. It's talking about strife and and the type of person that is blessed by God. This wise servant is blessed by God because this servant's doing the right thing and could actually be blessed monetarily as a result of receiving some of the inheritance, even among the brothers that are actually re- directly related to um, the servant's master. You know, Jeroboam rose above... Um, you know, his son, um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was eclipsed by Jeroboam, this general, this very trusted person in Solomon's government, because Rehoboam, his son, did the wrong thing, wanted to, wasn't merciful with the people, with taxes and all of that. And so as a result of that, the people rejected his son, Rehoboam, and embraced Jeroboam, So it's kind of an example of of that in a sense. Now verse 2 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the spirits. And there's a process of heating up precious metals that purifies them, that reveals all the impurities in those precious metals. The refining pot they used to do that with silver, and then the furnace was for gold that they would use. So he says, that's the true, that's the case. Those things were refined that way. But the Lord does it a different way. He, when he's refining, he's refining hearts. He tests the hearts. Psalm 66, verse 10 tells us this. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he said that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says our faith is more precious to him than gold. And, and as we walk with him and where it's tested by fire, our faith is 
on the day that Jesus is revealed from heaven, when we're coming back with him to this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation, that our faith will be tested and be found true and be found genuine. And that's what we want. We want to hear from the Lord. Every single one of us as believers is going to stand before Jesus and have to give an account for our lives. If you can read it in 1 Corinthians where he talks about that this Bema seed or this judgment seed of Christ where we're going to stand before God and have to give an account. Now this is, has nothing to do with heaven and hell. That's all settled. This has to do with our rewards and has to do with giving an accounting of our lives and our influence and the motivation of why we did what we did and all these things. And we'll have to stand before Jesus, just ourselves and him, and have to give an account. And we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But it also says there are going to be people that are, you know, barely escaped out of that as from like a burning fire, but they'll still be saved, but there'll be nothing left. So their rewards will, they won't have any rewards or very little rewards as a result of that. So how do you, how do you have rewards then? You have rewards by doing the things that God has called you to do and just by serving others and by giving your life away and by doing the things that the Holy Spirit leads you to, leads you to do and that you're doing them with love as a motivation, love for God and love for the people that you're doing them for. God cares about what we do. He wants us to get us serving and giving our lives away and taking care of people and blessing people. That's what he wants to happen in our lives. You know, we have all these opportunities for ministry coming up with VBS and all these things that we're doing and prayer and all these things. And that's how we get connected to what he's doing and find out how the Spirit's leading the church that, that we're a part of and all of that. And it's great to see people basically stepping up and rising up to be, to be used. Look at verse 4. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. This is interesting because most of the time we focus on what comes out of our own mouths, and we should. We should focus on what comes out of our own mouths. But verse 4, the lesson of this proverb is to help us to see that we're not only accountable for what we dispense or what is promulgated from our lives or what comes out of our lives, but we're also held accountable by God of what we receive and what we put up with or what we allow to come into our lives. Because notice the word heed there in verse 4. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. So we're supposed to guard what we receive, not just what comes out of our mouth. So what's that look like in practical life? It looks like this. We know someone is deceptive. We, we did not listen to what they say. If they have a track record of not telling the truth, especially in a spiritual environment, if they have, are teaching things that aren't right, because we need to hold them accountable by this, by this word of God. We're supposed to test what everybody says by Scripture. No one's above that. And we test them, and they're found to be false, then we're supposed to reject them and not listen to them. But it's not just spiritual context. It's also other contexts. People that have a history of not telling the truth. We shouldn't receive what they have to say, because... They, you may say, well, they, you know, they, they've said lies before, but, but they're probably not lying about this. Well, it's like you can't know that. We can't know. Once they prove themselves to be a liar, it's very hard for us to discern whether or not what they're saying now is true or false. And so we have to 
um, reject that. But also he says a liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. What's a spiteful tongue? Someone that says evil about somebody else slanders somebody else. You know, we don't talk a lot about that anymore. Slander is a sin. Gossip is a sin. Speaking evil about somebody is a sin. Even to our spouses. We Sometimes we think the gossip and the slander, it's okay as long as it's to my spouse or something. No, it's not at all. We'd be very careful what comes out of our mouths, what we receive and all of those things. And so we have to reject a spiteful tongue. What if everyone in the body of Christ stopped everybody when they started saying something bad about somebody? And we don't have a big problem here at all. So there's no you know, roundabout message I'm trying to give here. It's just God's word that we're looking at. But what if everybody said, you know, I'm sorry, that's not appropriate. And not in a condemning, in a, you know, a way where you make it seem like you're better than them. Nothing like that. No self-righteousness. Just, you know what, I don't think that's a good thing for us to talk about. And that's it. If we do that consistently, we'll be surprised. <laughs> Maybe we won't be surprised, but most of us would be surprised on how little we hear of that from that person again. Because they know we're not a person that will put up with that. So it's really important for us to see that. It's an important principle, and God um, included it in his word because he hates it. Now, speaking of a spiteful tongue, look with me at verse 5. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. See, this is, you need to know the background of with the Jews and the Old Testament and everything because they closely associated monetary prosperity with godliness and and to some extent that's true because there is a blessing many times that comes with godliness that god blesses us when we follow his word and all of that but there are many godly people that aren't monetarily uh, prosperous and even today there's false teachers out there that teach if you're you know struggling then somehow there's sin in your life or you don't have enough faith and all of those things and that's all false but that that was famous in that, in that time as well. And so people would look at poor people and they would look down upon them and they would say somehow there's something in their life we're not aware of. Even at one point, you may remember, the disciples came to Jesus and said, uh, they said, you know, who sinned? His parents or him? You know, and they said, no, neither one sinned. It's just that this has been allowed for God's glory to be seen at this moment. And, and so then he healed, healed them. So for us, we need to recognize that, and then we're very much engaged in helping the poor in our church, but none of us are above having reproach uh, for people that we can't relate to. And, and notice he connects it there in verse 5 when to, to God himself. He says, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. His is the poor's. So his, the one who made this this person, God, who's our maker. Notice he doesn't say he who mocks the poor reproaches, you know, random chance where all this random, you know, all these things are just made by random chance and this all design happened by, by accident and all this. He clearly says is maker. We have a maker and it's God. And when we insult or mock the poor who he cares about very much, we're mocking God himself. It's not, it's not a wise thing. That's the greatest understatement of the year to say that it's not a, a, a safe thing to mock our maker, obviously. 
And then he adds to it, though. Look at the last part of verse 5. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And he's not just talking about general calamity like someone that likes to watch tornadoes and, you know, or, or natural disasters and you're on the learning channel going, whoa, look at this storm. It's just like, you know, it's like, no, it's people experiencing calamity. And you're glad that people go through horrible times. You know, our hearts are desperately wicked, the scriptures say. And we have to be very careful about not enjoying, that's the, that's the best way we could paint it, not enjoying someone prospering and not rejoicing with them. Maybe because we're not rejoicing or prospering and we're, we're not glad that they're prospering because we're not prospering. And, you know, you, you're like, you know what, I don't really want that thing but I, at, right now, but I definitely don't want you to be blessed with it. You know, like well, the things we can do in our hearts is horrible. Even, even with the wicked, I want to read you a couple scriptures here, or at least one. It says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your wicked ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So Ezekiel's prophesying against the Israel who are sinners and sinning and full of idolatry and all these things and they're dying off and God's prophesying and says I take no pleasure in this I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked and if God doesn't we should neither and we should not rejoice when wicked people die and we're thinking about the possibility that they could be without Christ for all eternity because Jesus died for their sins Jesus loves them as much as he loves us and so he doesn't want us to rejoice in calamity. And he says, look at the end of verse 5, those that do that will not go unpunished. So we have to have a lot of sobriety in our heart related to what we're rejoicing over and who we're celebrating. Um, you know, it's, it's something that when we see even terrorists get killed, that shouldn't, it shouldn't bring us joy in the sense of we're thinking that they're probably not in heaven, probably in hell. That shouldn't rejo- we shouldn't be happy that anybody's in hell. God's not happy that anybody's in hell. And, and we, we should be, it should bring us sadness that that person didn't know Christ if that was the case. So it's, it's just a good principle for us to see. Verse 6, children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. So if you have grandchildren, you have to accept the word old there in the middle of verse 6. Just the way that it goes, you know? Old's relative anyway. Come on. Old, you know, that the 50 is the new 40 or the, you know, 60 is the new 35. I don't know. I get confused all those things, but um, you can have grandchildren pretty young. I have people uh, that are younger than me that have grandchildren. I like to tease them about that, but that's just me and my issues. But um, it is a blessing to be a grandparent, and that, that's what I've heard anyway. I'm not a grandparent yet. I'm hopeful, hopefully I will be when it's God's timing for that. But it, he says here, children's children are a crown of old men. You can say old women too, okay? It's a crown of old people. Um, any geriatric person, no, I'm just kidding. But you know, any seniors, any older, whatever, however you want to put it, it's a crown. It's something that to be proud of is to be someone... It's, it's to be thankful and just, and just to pour into them. Grandparents can say and get away with things that their parents would just cringe over. 
Oh, come on, have another piece of candy. Quit that. You shouldn't give them more candy. And like, my job's to spoil them right now. That's my job as a grandparent. But it's a beautiful thing, just that influence. If you're a grandparent here, take advantage of every moment with those grandkids and sow into them so much godliness and encouragement. And you have a unique place in their lives. And just take full advantage of that. But he continues at the end of verse 6, and the glory of children is their father. And that's an encouragement for fathers to be growing in their godly influence of their children and so forth. And it's just, we need it as, as, as fathers. We need that encouragement uh, to do the right thing, to say the right thing, and to recognize that God has placed us in a very strategic place and that what we say and do make more of an impact than we can possibly imagine. And I'm not priming the pump for Father's Day, although I'm not above that. Uh, but um, Father's Day is a great day. We celebrate dads. Verse 7. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. So fools don't... It's A fool that says some things that are good... It just isn't becoming. It's just, it doesn't even seem real. It seems like they're just reading a teleprompter that you're not, that you can't find. You can't see it at the moment. Like, where's your teleprompter? You're saying some pretty amazing things, but um, your life doesn't recognize that or, or reflect that. So excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. So if you're a prince here, you shouldn't lie, just for you to know. Um, you know, what's interesting is that literally the Hebrew is the lip of excellence is not becoming to a fool, much less a lip of lying to a prince. So it gets really literal in there. You know, there's, he's talking specifically about certain types of lips, and it's, uh, it's interesting. Things interest me. I'm sorry. I look at stuff, and I'm like, wow, that's pretty incredible. So thank you for enduring my issues. Verse 8. A present is a precious stone... In the eyes of its possessor, whoever he turns, or wherever he turns, he prospers. Now this is, on the surface, appears one thing, but it's really something else. So this present is really talking about a bribe there in verse 8. So this precious stone would be like a stone of favor that someone would give, like a charm. um, And it would be like a superstitious stone that would be used to cast a spell and all of that. And, and what he's saying is to the person that receives this stone to, for a bribe, it's precious to them. It's just stating the, the, the reality. Um, and it's deceptive. It's deceptive to think that you're going to receive a, a, some kind of bribe and it's going to benefit your life. You know, in, in verse 23, we'll see next time that bribes, The purpose of them are to pervert the way of justice, we're told in verse 23, the same chapter. And so, you know, that's what bribes do. They pervert the way of justice. So God isn't behind them. He isn't for them. He wants honest scales. He wants honest business dealings. Um, That's what he can bless and so forth. Verse 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. This is interesting because... We can, we can highlight sins and transgressions and we can, um, you know, we can be inappropriate related to our relationships with people 
when they're falling short of the standard that we know is scriptural. And we can, you know, we're told that love covers a multitude of sins. And the tricky thing for us is to be appropriate towards somebody in the, in the way that they need to have us be appropriate, where we're not winking at sin, we're not saying that it's okay, but at the same time, we're letting them know that our love for them is unconditional and that we care about them and want what's best for them no matter what. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. We're supposed to be people that are very gracious and overlook things and for, are quick to forgive and all of that, and God will bless that. And so he says, he who covers a transgression seeks love. Because why else would you do it? But then he says, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. And this has to do with confidentiality. And that's another thing that is going away more and more in our culture, where people just say, I mean, how many times have we seen in the news lately, especially, unnamed sources? I mean, people that are right within these key positions are saying things that no one can verify. And it's horrible. They shouldn't even allow that. I mean, the, I'm not talking about messing with the freedom of the press. I'm talking about those institutions, those newspapers, those websites, those TV stations. They should not allow, I don't believe, anonymous sources because you can never verify them. And it's just gossip and it's just um, throws, I mean, anybody can say anything. I could be there typing up a story and say an unnamed source said whatever I want, to, whatever I want it to say. So it, it's, it's horrible. But that can happen in relationships. Again, he's talking about strife and peace within relationships. And when people trust us with information, we need to be faithful to conceal information that needs to remain concealed. It's not our place. That's the big question we need to ask. Is this my place to repeat this, to say this thing to somebody else? Because it's true what it says at the end of verse 9. It does separate friends. And again, God cares about our relationships. Way more than we realize, he cares about our relationships. And he wants those things to be uh, maintained and cared for and uh, preserved. Verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. So wise people can take rebukes. If, and obviously it's easier to take a rebuke when it's done lovingly. How many of you have ever received a rebuke that was not done lovingly? Okay. It's, hurt, it, it's hard. But we have to separate how it was done with what they're saying, as hard as that is. And to say, is this really true? Is there even 10% truth to this? And sometimes people can deliver something to us that... They, they don't have all the facts, or and they mean well, and they're trying to help us, but we have to recognize that they're, they're trying to do this, but a very small percentage of what they're saying is actually reality, but at least they're taking the risk to do it, and they want to help me, and I need to receive that and thank them, because they're taking a risk to do it for one, but number two, the next time, they might be 100% on, or 50% on, or 80% on, on target, and we want to be able to be open to correction, because he says a wise man can be receptive to that but then he says then a hundred blows on a fool now this is hyperbole this is exaggeration this is i mean they weren't allowed to to do that more than 40 lashes according to the law in deuteronomy chapter 25 and a lot of times they would do aim for 39 just in case they miscounted so they would never 
they would never scourge somebody more than 40 times. And he says, but even if he did 100, that's going to be less effective than a, re- than a rebuke to somebody who is a wise man. Um, so we have to be able to receive rebuke. Verse 11. An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Now, rebellion is, we're told in 1 Samuel, rebellion is as bad as the sin of witchcraft. And that's the root of evil, period, is rebellion. We're also told that stubbornness is like idolatry. And so in the law of Moses, we are, it's revealed that re, that rebellion is, is a reflection of how bad my heart is. The law of Moses was never intended to save anybody. The law of Moses, all 613 laws in the law of Moses, was to show me that I needed a savior. Was to show the Jews that they needed a savior. That they could never be good enough to earn a right standing with God. To be able to be good enough to where those, those um, sacrifices weren't necessary because we keep falling short. If anything, and Paul said this in Romans, that I wouldn't know sin if it weren't for the law. So in that sense, it, it further defined his sinfulness. And, and so he, in, in his own heart, he realized he was way more than a sinner than he thought because of the law of Moses and, and all of that. So an evil man seeks only rebellion. So we see it many expressions today in our culture, just full-on rebellion. And he says, therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. There will be a repercussions of that. You, if you're in rebellion or if you have a season of rebellion or if you start going against God's word, you're going to have repercussions of that and you're going to receive news that is not good because you're going to be reaping what you've sown. Very important wisdom there. Verse 12. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs <laughs> than a fool in his folly. I don't know how many of you have gone out in the wilderness and you've come across a bear. That's scary enough. But to be in front of a bear that's Uh, been robbed of her cubs and you're the first person (laughs) that bear sees after those cubs are gone that's some that you don't want to be in that place it's like it's been said when you're getting chased by a bear with running with someone else you don't have to outrun the bear you just have to outrun the other person you're with you know so it would be good to say you know why not have a fool and a bear and run faster than the fool so then the fool will get nailed and you won't so um we can twist this however we want, unfortunately, in our minds. But the point is, is that a fool in his folly could take many different expressions. And it's been said, you know, consider a fool with a knife or a gun or behind the wheel of a car. We've seen that in the news lately, or terrorists are running people down, you know, or, or they have these weapons and all these things. And you could make a case that a mother bear being recently robbed of her cubs could be less dangerous in many practical ways in our minds. We can think of that, and it's true. So we have to be careful. And Do we know foolish people? Let's just bring that up. Do we surround ourselves with foolish people? It's dangerous. You know, we're told in Corinthians that evil company corrupts good morals. That isn't just for children. That's for adults as well. If we surround ourselves with evil people all the time, and those are the main people that we're around, it's going to affect us. It's going to have an effect. We are, if we're around those types of people, we're going to get caught up in some of those things. And some people, 
don't learn that as, as when they're younger and they continue that all the way into adult life and then they end up suffering as a result of it because they refuse to stay away from people that are fully expressing their foolish life. And I know we need to be around people to preach the gospel and all that. That's totally appropriate, but we have to be very, very careful as we have people around us that don't know him or are walking in rebellion to God. Verse 13. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Man, is this true. Those that return, that you do good and they return evil for that, they have problems, systemic problems in their homes on a typical basis because their, their lives are, are in total disobedience and in rebellion to God. And, and as a result of that, evil will not depart from their house. And they're going to have continuous issues over and over again. Again, this is talking about relationships. It's talking about having peace. It's talking about walking in unity with people. And then he gives us something very, very practical in verse 14. The beginning of strife is like cleansing or releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. So when you release water, that when you see it today in the dams that we have and the they're releasing water right now because of the heat and all of that. And it increases over time and it cascades and it builds and it gets exponentially stronger and all of that to where it's, it's irresistible or you can't withstand it. And he's saying that's what happens with strife. It starts out very small, but then it just starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And if we don't do anything in the beginning to affect it, then it'll just, it'll just get out of control. And it's good that we see in Scripture to be at peace and to be forgiving and all of those things. We're told, don't let your sun go, the sun go down on your wrath. That's a very wise principle, especially if you're married or have relationships, um, you know, your kids and all of that. You should not let the sun go down. Go to bed with things still brewing and still um, occurring there that can go over to the next day. So he said, don't do that. Don't stop the contention before this quarrel starts. Stop it. Now, how do you do that? You're gracious. You're forgiving. As it says, it takes two to tango, right? Maybe Dancing with the Stars, you know, they have three or I don't know how they work that out now with all, with all the different ways that they do that. Pretty soon they'll have, they'll have robots dancing with, them, with people on Dancing with the Stars and they'll be judging the robot, how the robot did compared to the, okay, I'm off track again, but, um, you know, it's, it's just getting ridiculous. Uh, but to be able to stop that before it starts, to be gracious and to be saying, look, what did I do? Did I do anything to, to, to affect you? And, you know, how can I... You know, what did I do to hurt you in any way? I want to apologize. I want to do the right thing. I want to ask forgiveness and all of that and, and to be gracious and loving and all of that because we can stop that before it gets out of control. And that's what, that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be at peace with other people. He doesn't want our kids to be raised in a home where there's strife and there's fighting all the time. He doesn't want that. He doesn't glorify him. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's a bad witness. It's a bad example. And so if, if that's something that's a continuous thing, then I would just encourage you to increase your time with the Lord. Increase your time with him every day. Increase your time uh, letting him 
reveal to you what areas you need to improve on. That'll humble you every time. <laughs> you be gracious with other people. As it's been said, our sin looks the worst on other people. You know, the things that drive us crazy are usually the areas that we struggle in, and we have weaknesses, and it, and it, and it drives us crazy to, to see other people engaged in the thing that we have a struggle with. So very important wisdom here. We'll continue it next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We want to live at peace with people. Help us, Lord. Remind us by your Holy Spirit to call upon you when we're sensing our rage or we're sensing our struggle, we're sensing our impatience. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to forgive, to be gracious. Lord, remind us to not let our, uh, the sun go down on our wrath. Father, help us to be loving and gracious and forgiving. We want to reflect you. We just thank you for your word. We thank you for all the truths that are here. We want to not just be learning things intellectually, Lord. We want to have you change us from the inside out as a result of these verses. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.